Hello, everyone. This is Victor Jackson. Welcome to the Bible Centered Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Bible Centered with Victor Jackson. Thank you so much for joining and thank you for the feedback and the reviews. And um, it's great to hear from you guys. Uh, I was signing some books uh, this past week and many came to me talking about the impact that the podcast has had on their lives. That they listen to it before work, they listen to it on the lunch break, or even before they go to bed. And I appreciate you guys tuning in, honor and respect each of you. I will be picking up again soon on uh, reading uh, my book, A Word to the Broken, audio uh, to those that have subscribed uh, to the podcast. So we talked about how Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses to the Jews, basically making a foundation that convincing the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, not only to them, but to the entire world. And Matthew makes sure he portrays Jesus on this mountain, giving revelation and giving understanding that was comparable to the revelation that Moses was getting when he was on the mount. But although Jesus is greater than Moses because he is leading the people of God out of sin, not just out of the geographical location of Egypt. So let's continue on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Ye are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said to those of old, ye shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable 
to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I want to stop there. That's in verse 26. Tomorrow I will pick up in verse 27, but I want to sufficiently deal with the content of these particular verses. We talked about verse one and two last week, wrapping up uh, in uh, the gospel of Matthew chapters one through four and giving a precursor and uh, an anticipation of what we would be covering today. Jesus sees the crowds, the disorganized crowds. That's what the word multitudes mean. And he went up to a mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. We talk about how disciple reflects the teachings of their teacher. That's the difference between a disciple and a multitude. A disciple is somebody that is allowing the teacher's um, words to penetrate their lives. And we talk about the significance last week of Jesus going to the mount. And how when he went up the mount, they looked at him. But when he set himself on the mount, they listened to him. And we talked about consistently, consistency and longevity. Now, we are dealing with something profound here because he doesn't just want his disciples to hear him. He wants what he is saying to penetrate their daily lives. And this is an important concept to understand because he never envisioned the kingdom to be something abstract that does not affect your daily life. That church, the ecclesia, the called out, was never designed to, to be this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, to, to be this unbelievable thought and dream that is never manifested in personal relationship. That this dream, this vision is not successful if it does not penetrate relationships. If it does not penetrate our daily lives, if it doesn't affect us on our job, if it doesn't affect us in our family, if it doesn't affect affect us in our community, then, then it's not kingdom because the kingdom is designed to penetrate every iota, uh, every fiber of our being where it affects all of our daily relationships. The kingdom of heaven this is what he is presenting in the Beatitudes is that he designed his words to be lived out by his people. And this is why people get disenchanted with churches and get disenchanted with Christianity because people talk a lot about love and a lot about this and a lot about that. And it's all in this abstract realm. But the issue is, is that, they're not allowing those thoughts and words to to show change of behavior. And, And God speaks kingdom things to penetrate every form of our lives. It's supposed to affect how we talk, how we walk, um, uh, how how we dress, how, how we speak, how how we treat people, how we love by this shall they know you're my disciples that you have love for one another. And so with that being said, he is giving 
the kingdom principles to not only live out, but to but for it to not be ritualistic behaviors, but that it's coming from the fuel that is in his presence. It's coming from the fuel that is in his presence. That that is not a, a ritual, a bunch of ritualistic uh, behaviors, but but there is a reality of kingdom that is pushing through a life. Verse two. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." When he says the poor in spirit, he is not speaking about being materially poor. He he is speaking about having a spiritual poverty that no matter how much you're blessed, no matter how much you've known God, no matter how long you've served him, that there is still something in you that cultivates a dependency that says, God, I need you. And no matter how much I've preached, no matter where I've traveled, no matter how effective I am, no matter if you're a billionaire, a millionaire, no matter what innovations you possess, no matter what creativity, that there is still a poorness in spirit that says, I need God. Uh, literally, the Greek word for poor here, it, 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 is, it, is, it means as a, to be a beggar, uh, where... In this time in in Jerusalem, in this time in Judea, where what the beggars would do is that they would cover up their eyes with their with their right arm because they were embarrassed, they were ashamed to be begging, and they would lift out, let out their left hand, uh, asking for money. Uh, that's what the word poor means to be a beggar. And so it is to enter into God's presence with a reverence, a reverence and a res- respect and uh, for his awesomeness is like entering into a king's court, uh, approaching the king's throne, putting our right arm over our face because of embarrassment. We cannot believe we, we feel so unworthy to be in his presence yet to still have the courage to lift out the hand and 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 beg for 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 something that only comes from God. And so the poor in spirit is not speaking of being poor. Uh you're not more spiritual for being poor and you're not more spiritual for being rich. The kingdom has more to do more, more is more than your socioeconomic status. The kingdom is something that is measured by your heart and by your spirit and by your attitude. It is not measured in your earthly possessions. So to be poor in spirit, it, it is a confession of complete dependence that no matter what I have gained in life, I still need God. That is the secret to success. That is the secret to being successful in the kingdom that no matter what happens, you still have a dependency in God, that you still are a student in his presence. And then he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he speaks present tense, that this posture, that you are able to have the kingdom now with that type of posture. Uh, for many of the other blessings, he speaks of future tense, that this is what will happen. These are actions in time that will happen. But when he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven regarding the poor in spirit, he is speaking of having the kingdom presently with these attitudes that I am behaving this way not to get something but it's because I, I have something. I, I can get the kingdom now. And this is what Jesus is showing. He's showing that the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed. He is showing that the kingdom is like a little leaven and a loaf of bread. That it starts small, but over time it grows and it becomes bigger than all the other herbs. And it becomes, it overtakes the whole loaf. So the poor in spirit are receiving the kingdom presently. Verse four, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the audience that he is speaking to, they are literally still in some sense of mourning because they are still under the oppression of Rome. He is speaking to an oppressed people um, that are under the lordship of, of the Roman Empire. And so they have a desire to see God's glory to come in the temple again. They have a desire to to have freedom and possibly have a Jewish king again. But he's saying that those that mourn, that they shall be comforted. That that no matter what posture you're in, that in in the kingdom, you're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, they do not have to have strife and have to battle and use personal agendas to get what they want. They they have a meek, a trust in God and a love for people that they don't have to possess the land, they inherit the land. That God just gives them the earth because of how they are treating people and how they are treating God's presence. They aren't proud. They aren't jockeying for position. There is a meekness. They're powerful, but but they know how to have a self-control. They they don't lord over every conversation. They do not uh, project themselves to be more than they are. They do not push down others' accomplishments. They do not push down others in order to raise themselves up. That is the definition of meek. And he said that they shall inherit the earth. The purest definition of meekness is Jesus Christ because he possessed all things, yet he became nothing. That he humbled himself in the form of a servant and and he robed himself in flesh, God in the flesh. He leaves the sound of angels worshiping, leaves the streets of gold, the walls of Jasper and the pearly gates. He leaves the chants of holy, holy, holy. And he humbles himself and he allows himself to be raised in Nazareth as a poor carpenter. And he's walking in a meekness. And for 30 years, they don't even know his God. His meekness is so great. But but the power, just because he's meek, doesn't mean he's weak. And you don't want to mistake his meekness for weakness. See, meek people are, are, are taken advantage of because... People think that they can get over on them because they're not saying anything. But a meek person is a powerful person. They just have their power under control. They don't just use their power to exercise their agenda when they want. No, they trust in God. There is a dependency in God. And God said, you don't even have to possess the land. I'm going to give you the land. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That those that hunger and thirst to, to, for God's righteousness, for God's character, for God's nature, for God's I- identity, he said they shall be satisfied. They're going to begin to reflect God's nature and identity. They're going to be able to reflect his, 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 uh, him being just and and, and him being love and him being mercy and him being all of these character uh, traits, when we begin to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, he's going to satisfy us and his nature is going to be shown in our nature when we make that our chief desire. Luke, when he gives this same uh, beatitude, he says, Woe unto you that are full because you shall hunger. And he is speaking of we can be filled with so many wrong things that we don't have a hunger for God. Later when he would get into uh, uh, the parable of the sower, it says that in the thorny ground that the word was choked out because 
of the cares of this world, because of deceitfulness of riches, and because of the lust for other things. He didn't say the lust for bad things. He said the lust for other things. Anything that you want other than God can choke out the word that he gave you. Anything you want more than you want God can choke out the the prophetic words that he wants to give you. Because he said the lust for other things, that could be a good thing. That could be a relationship. That could be a job opportunity. But a lust is an over-desire where you desire it so much that you're willing to break God's laws to get it. And the lust for other things, you can lust after a good thing. Choke out the word. So so what Matthew is mentioning here in verse six is to have a hunger and thirst after righteousness. There is a singularity in pursuit that, that, that I know that everything else will fall into place if I just keep seeking him. If I just keep going after him, everything else is going to fall into place. They shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. And and the singularity of focus, the singularity of focus is, is critical in bearing good fruit and critical for us being good ground. That anything that we want more to, than God can choke out the word that he's put in us. So we have to get back a singularity of focus that says, I'm hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. And he said, I'm going to be satisfied. Notice how when he mentions this blessing and he mentions these things, notice how he's expecting the kingdom to penetrate the daily life. From the inside out, he's expecting it to have an impact. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that the kingdom principles and kingdom community, he is giving the principles of a new kingdom community that is just different than what existed with the synagogues and those that were in the temple. Because those that were in the synagogues and the temple, they had a lot of outward righteousness, but not a lot of inward righteousness. And what Jesus is doing is he is focusing on the internal to, to, to bring power to the external. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive merciful. This will be reiterated later when he says, Give and it shall be given you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men given to your bosom. He's not just talking about giving there. He was talking about mercy, and he was talking about judgment. And what he was saying was that if you give judgment, uh, then it's going to be given back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over shall men give judgment back into your bosom. And that's the same thing for mercy. If you give mercy, give, and it shall be given you, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give you back mercy into your bosom. And so again, this is a kingdom principle. How we treat people, we will be treated that same way. It is the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated. And when there is a kingdom community that is merciful to people, then when we're in trouble and when we're going through our issues, uh, we're going to receive mercy. But the last thing I want is to be so judgmental that 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 if, if you ever go through something, you're going to reap back judgment because you've been giving judgment. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, notice he didn't say uh, the pure uh the just the pure he said the pure in heart he is focused is focusing on inward intentions he is focusing on you see because the pharisees and the sadducees and the scribes they would reflect uh, outward ritual purity and they would do rituals of purity 
But what he is speaking of is a pure in heart, that, that pure motives, pure intentions, pure desires, what you literally want to see people succeed without a motive, loving people and treating them right without an ulter- ulterior motive. That, my friend, is what you call the pure in heart. The pure in heart, one of our our principles in our church is, number one, love God, love, equip, and serve. And then the second part of that vision is the presence of God, the word of God, and purity. That if we're going to do this, we have to make sure we're pure. God, search our motives, search our desires search us because we want to do ministry from a pure place. And he said, when you are pure in heart, that you're going to see God. See the pure in heart, get revelation, the pure in heart, get understanding the pure in heart. They get, they get to see sides of God that no one else gets to see because we're literally seeking God not to get something from him but because we love him. We're literally serving people not to get a dime out of them, not not to have them do something for us, but because they have been made in the image of God and Jesus died for them, I can serve them with a pure heart. If there needs to be a revival in the church, there has to be a revival of purity. That, that, that this isn't, we've got to stop treating people like customers, stop treating people like business transactions and treating them like their souls that Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood. The pure in heart, they shall see God. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers, those are the ones that are are willing to do whatever it takes to to solve and resolve conflict, even if they get the 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 small stick in the deal. Uh, they they are willing to do. They're willing to humble themselves to make peace. And he said that those peacemakers, they're going to be called the sons of God. What, what what Jesus is showing now is from the abstract kingdom, he is starting to give ways to live out this kingdom in daily relationships. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are people that quote this scripture and they don't get what he's saying. What he's saying here is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, see, he's going back to present tense. You're able to get the kingdom now, he's saying. But in time, when you're pure in heart, you shall see. The peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. The hunger, Those that hunger and thirst have the righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those are attributes. You shall receive mercy. Those are attributes. Those are actions in time. But 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 whenever what you can have today is is the kingdom of heaven. That that you can live for a kingdom approval over over. Uh, a reciprocity of proper actions in time and receiving uh, things in time, what you receive in eternity is greater than what you receive in time. What you receive in heaven is greater than what you can receive in the earth. So he says, yes, in in the earth, you know, you're going to be comforted. You're going to inherit. You're going to be field. You're going to have mercy. You're going to see God. You're going to be called the sons of God. But but the, the chief desire, the chief motivation of all of this is an eternity consciousness, an eternity consciousness that affects your day-to-day. Because you can get the kingdom of heaven uh, today. You can operate under the influence of the kingdom of heaven today. But he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It doesn't say uh, um, 
for uh, uh, for just persecution, but he says for righteousness' sake. What does that mean? That means uh, it doesn't mean for your uh, for politics' sake. It doesn't mean uh, uh, you know you curse somebody out and now they're persecuting you. No, that's that's not what that means. He said, persecution is only persecution when you're being persecuted for righteousness sake. And another text, he says, when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Persecution is only persecution if you're walking in his righteousness. But if you put a post on your social media, you know, uh, cursing people out or condemning people over uh, some cultural things going on in the world and and you get you know uh, blown up uh, on your Facebook or on your Instagram you get blown up with comments you know you call that persecution that's not persecution uh, that's that's you you made a decision and you're reaping consequences for that decision and if you want to reap those consequences fine but don't say you're doing this on behalf of the kingdom. You're doing this on behalf of your opinions, on behalf of your preferences, on behalf of your behaviors. That's why you're receiving whatever you sow, you shall reap. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So don't complain about what you're reaping when when you look at what you're sowing. Whatever you're sowing, you're reaping. But he said persecution is when you're doing it for righteousness sake, is when you're walking out the word of God, is when you're walking out where you're moving in love, is whenever you're moving in the in the kingdom of God with an eternity consciousness and people start persecuting you for that. People start persecuting you for praying. People start persecuting you because you have a calling. People start persecuting you because you're treating people right. People start persecuting you because God is blessing your ministry. People start, pers- you see, that you see it, that is being persecuted for righteousness sake. But, but every little thing is not persecution. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What he's showing here is the tension of people living in kingdom community. There's going to be kingdom conflict. Because you're living, you're marching to, to, to a different beat. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be resistance. But he said, don't look at the resistance. Look at the reward in heaven. Get an eternity consciousness because the eternity consciousness is what's going to keep you on this journey. The eternity consciousness is what's going to keep you walking and moving in the power of God. That your your obedience is not dictated by the approval or disapproval of the crowd. You're moving with an eternity consciousness. And you are rejoicing and you're glad because you know your reward is great in heaven. And the prophets were persecuted this way. Matthew is showing the guidelines of Jesus preaching and giving a kingdom community, kingdom revelation, kingdom actions that are expected that will be be pitched against the actions that are in the world he's showing a distinctiveness verse 13 you are the salt of the earth but if the salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet now he here he's speaking of the distinctiveness of salt they use salt for a lot of reasons and for a, a, a lot of things as preservative. Salt was a, a grand commodity in this time. Salt's influence was across the entire earth. But the one thing that can make salt lose its taste, it's when other minerals get mixed in with the salt where it is, loses its saltiness. Where other things, other external things start 
start penetrating the purity of the salt where you can't taste the salt distinctiveness anymore. And it's not able to do what it's supposed to do anymore because so many minerals have been allowed in. What he's speaking of is that he's given kingdom community relationships and how to live out these kingdom things, but they're going to be under constant threat of being penetrated by the culture and by the world where you can lose your, that salt, that salt, that saltiness. You, you can lose your, your savor. You can lose your taste where you are not distinct from the world because now the world hates this person, so you hate this person. The world is against this person, so now you're against the person. The world will pitch you against, the, the media will pitch you against people and you can get caught up in these agendas and all of these things from the world where you lose your distinction and now you're not resisted. Why? Because you're going with the flow. Are you getting what I'm saying here? I hope this is helping somebody. To, to, for the salt to lose its distinctiveness is when other minerals are paired with the salt, which chokes out the flavor of the salt, which makes the salt good for nothing. So to continue loving when you're hurting, to continue being a peacemaker, to continue having the pure, being pure in heart, to continue, to continue to be meek and be poor in spirit and hunger and thirst and have mercy uh, on people, to continue to have that in a world that is evil, that is trying to destroy people, that a world in a world that is manipulative, to, to continue to keep that purity with all that's going on, that is that means you you have kept. Your, the salt pure where you're able to keep your influence upon the world that there is a distinction but whenever you allow the minerals of the world to seep into that salt you don't stand out anymore verse 14 you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light into all that are in the house. So look what he does here. He shows us three examples of being extinct, distinct and having influence. He says the world, the city, and the house. Do you see the progression here? The progression is that if you want to be distinct and start making impact, uh, the first th place that that needs to start is in your house. Because he says, no, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Meaning the first place we're supposed to light up is light up our house. Some people want to skip the house and go straight to the world. We want to impact the world before we want to impact our homes. Oh, I'm going to help somebody here. And, and, there, and there are people that want to do a ministry to the world, but they don't know how to treat their kids right. There are people that want to do a ministry to the world, but they don't know how to, how to treat their siblings right. People that want to be effective in the world, but they don't know how to treat their parents right. People want to bring the word to the world, but won't bring the word to their home. They want to pray a blessing over the world, but won't pray a blessing over their home. I'm talking to somebody here. I am helping somebody here right now. The authenticity of ministry, it's, it starts in the home. And these kingdom principles have to be lived out at home. And if you live it out at home, he said, don't put a light under over over, don't put a bushel over your light. It's supposed to give light unto all there in the house. It's supposed to influence the darkness in the house. Your actions, your love, your desires, how you how you treat people, it should influence your kids, your spouse. It should influence that home. And as you do that, you get into a place where you're able to be a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
once you live the life at home, you're able to have a positive impact in the city, on your job, in your workplace, in your neighbors, people in your community. And you are able that influence of, of a church in a city that is living out these kingdom principles, all of a sudden you are living it out and it affects the city. And if you affect the city over time, you are able to be the light of the world where you're, you're influencing now the world because of the kingdom principles that you're walking in. But everything has to start at the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So people are, are supposed to be able to see our good works, that, that being a, a disciple, that there are supposed to be good works that follow, that do not stem from our righteousness, but stems from his righteousness, that does not stem from our ability, but stems from his ability. But they're supposed to be able to see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify God. They will respect and honor us, but they will glorify God. Glorifying people, uh, the only person that deserves glory is God. I give honor to man, but I give glory to God. But it's going to start in our homes. So Matthew is forming the basis with Jesus showing that he's building a, a, a new community, uh, an ecclesia, which is the word church. He is building a community that is living out the, the intentions of the law. That is more than just proper behaviors, but, but it's stemming from a righteousness that comes from the kingdom of God. But it starts in our homes. If you want to make an effect on your job, start start affecting your home. If you want to affect the world, start affecting your workplace in the city. It starts somewhere. Every transformation, it starts in the house. See, before the gospel could go to the world, the, it, the, the spirit of God first had to fall in a house in the upper room in Acts 2. Even the spirit of God that's being poured out where he said, I'm going to pour it out on all flesh. The spirit of God first visited a house. The Bible says that the, the, the spirit of God, it filled all the house where they were sitting. Anytime God is about to transform a life, a city, a nation, a world, he always visits a home first. Somebody starts praying at home. Somebody starts opening the Bible at home. Somebody starts treating people properly at home. Somebody starts loving and forgiving and reconciling at home. The spirit comes to the home first before it's poured out in the world. It came to the house. It filled all the house where they were sitting. We can't skip those steps. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, who, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he is speaking that he's not, it looks like he's abolishing the law as if the law doesn't mean anything, but he's saying, I've come to fulfill it. He's come to fulfill the intention of the law. And the intention of the law was to bring man into relationship. The intention of the law is, was, was to, to bring men into covenant relationship with God and to respect God's presence. But it became something else. It became its own form of a self-piety and self-righteousness that, that people didn't have relationship with God anymore, but at least they kept the right behaviors. And so they missed the meaning. And so what, 
what God is doing here, what Jesus is doing is he is showing the intention of the law. And that, that he has come to fulfill it, that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Remember, the theme of Matthew is fulfillment. And he highlights the Old Testament that it is the word of God. Jesus confesses that the Old Testament is the word of God. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the righteousness of the Pharisees is an external righteousness. But what Jesus is saying, I want it to be internal and external. I, but I want it to start from the inside and work, it, work its way out to the outside. This is why later he would say, man, you Pharisees, you're full of dead men's bones. Like you, you, you're whited sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And, and the issue was that he was calling the people back to have an internal and a spiritual transformation. That 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 fuels proper behaviors, proper external actions. And through that, when you do that, what he's saying is that those disciples' righteousness is going to exceed the scribe and Pharisees. Even one, one time Jesus told them, he said, listen, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He said, do what they say, just don't do what they do. They're telling you right. They're just not living right. And Jesus understood that the power of the kingdom is in the life, not just what is said. That, that, is, that is more than just words, but there, but there is a life that backs this up. Verse 21, you have heard that it, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Let's. He says, "Ye shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment." But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, "You fool," will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, he, he is exploring now that he is giving a, 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 a greater law than even Old Testament law because he's dealing with motives and intentions. Because what people would do is they would get angry with people, but they would justify their anger in living in a state of anger because, hey, at least I didn't murder anybody. But what Jesus is doing is he is nipping something in the bud here because what he is showing here is that anger can lead to murder. And this is why later in the epistles, it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Meaning it's okay to be angry. It says be angry and sin not in one other text. It's okay to be angry, but, but you have to bring that anger to his presence and allow him to deal with that as soon as possible. Because if you let that anger sit and marinate and germinate, the end result of anger is murder. And we saw this with Cain and Abel. And so Jesus is saying, it's not enough to just say, hey, I didn't murder anybody. He's saying, no, we've got to go into the basis of anger because you're in, you're in danger of judgment. You can't be mad all the time. You can't hold a grudge all the time. You can't have unforgiveness all the time. You, it, it can lead you into a dangerous place mentally. It can lead you into a dangerous place where you spend all of your might on, on revenge and harming somebody. But anger can lead to murder. 
So he says, it's important for you to bring the anger into his presence and deal with it. And because you have to be careful, because once you start getting angry, you start saying some things that insult God's image. Because every man and woman on earth reflects God's image. Man and woman reflect God's image. They reflect God's image very differently, though. Women reflect God's, you know, uh, different aspects of God, and, and men reflect different aspects of God. Both are made in the image of God, but these uh, attributes and characteristics are emphasized uh, within a woman and emphasized with, with a man. And, and so everyone is made in the image of God. So what God is saying is be careful how you're talking about someone I made and someone that I love. When you call them a fool and you, you are literally trying to pierce through their identity and say that they're not my child, but, they're, but they are foolish. They, and what you're saying is that it, I, it was a mistake that I made them. And he said, you're in danger of hellfire with that type of talking. So in the kingdom community, you have to be careful how you speak about people. Don't gossip. Don't lie. Don't try to hurt. Don't try to dehumanize. Don't, don't, don't speak careful how you speak to people because he says, we're in danger of hell, hellfire if, if we are assaulting God's image man made in the image of God, and we are insulting what God created. Be careful. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What he's saying here is, is that if you're in the middle of doing an offering at the altar and people had to do a pilgrimage and a journey to Jerusalem to do this, if you remember your brother has something against you, put the offering to the side and go back on that journey, which could take several days to get to Jerusalem, go back on that journey, go make it right, and then travel to several days to come back and finish your offering. He was placing the an importance on, on reconciliation. Now, I want to highlight there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, it takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to reconcile. And one of the false narratives that Christianity has done is that if if you don't reconcile, it's as if you know you're you're living in a state of guilt. But it takes two people to reconcile. Forgiveness takes one person. So when someone has done something wrong to you, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to God and ask God to help you to forgive. Now, uh, psychologists and therapists. Uh, they have a little bit of an issue with Christians because, because Christians are so quick to forgiveness, they don't process what needs to be forgiven. They get hurt and something happens and they immediately say, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, without understanding all the damage and the consequences of what happened. So they do premature forgiveness without processing it. You're supposed to healthily process what has happened and then forgive. But what happens if you forgive quick without weighing the damage? All of a sudden, after you forgive, you start seeing more damage was caused than you even initially realized. So what happens? You start opening up the wound again and you keep having to forgive over and over and over. Like, I didn't know they said that. I didn't know they did that. I don't know they did that. And and you are delaying the process of forgiveness because you didn't weigh what happened properly. You rushed into it. And psychologists and therapists have, have, have an issue with Christians doing this. We are supposed to weigh what happened. Okay, they did that. They did that. Okay, that hurts. That's painful. They did this. They did that. Okay, okay, all right. I forgive. 
That's what forgiveness looks like. It's not as soon as it happens, I forgive. And then later, several days later, you find out more and more stuff and you have to keep forgiving all over again. Weigh the damage and forgive. So forgiveness is your responsibility, but reconciliation it is not your sole responsibility. Forgiveness only takes one person. Reconciliation takes two people. And so, and so reconciliation is meeting in the middle. So you come and meet in the middle, but they have a responsibility come to come and meet you. But what happens if they don't want to come meet you? What happens if they don't want to change their toxic behaviors? What happens if we, if they don't want to stop disrespecting you? Then it's not within your power to reconcile. You just need to forgive, but and, and that takes time. I'm not saying rush forgiveness. Forgive, but make sure you process all the pain that's happened. Make sure you process all the pain that's happened. And then forgive. Amen? And so, reconciliation is when both parties meet in the middle. But what happens if they don't want to meet you in the middle? Then it, it's there's no way to be reconciled unless you subject yourself to abuse. If a person is abusing you, you you don't go and they don't want to change. You don't. Yes, you for you can forgive, but you don't go back into a toxic environment and back into a situation and receive abuse again. And and for in the name of reconciliation, that is not biblical reconciliation. That is putting yourself in harm's way consistently, believing that you're spiritual. But you have to understand biblically that Jesus has given us the ministry of reconciliation, but he has reconciled the world. The Bible says to wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Listen, Jesus did his part to reconcile us, but there's still people that don't believe him. There's still people that haven't reconciled to God, even though God did everything it took to be reconciled to us. He went on the cross. He died for us. He resurrected. He sent his spirit. But we have a responsibility to come into the uh, requirements of reconciliation. God did everything he could do. But we have to do our part. That's what it means with two parties. See, God is not going to enforce or encroach on our free will. We choose if we want to reconcile to him or not. So Jesus paid the price to wit God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. He paid the price for every for every Jew, for every Buddhist, for every Hindu, for every, every Muslim. But they decide whether they come to him and be reconciled or not. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So he did everything it took to be reconciled, but now because there's two parties, we have to make our decisions to be reconciled to him. That's how it is with two parties. So I'm teaching here. So if a brother is open to reconciliation and open to change behaviors, then by all means, that's a beautiful thing that needs to happen. But but if, if someone's unwilling to repent or, or live out the fruits of repentance and they keep subjecting you to harm and toxicity, then that's a dangerous that, that, that's a dangerous thing to be around. And you have to use wisdom on how to how to navigate that. But if there's hope for that reconciliation, then it's, it's stop in the middle of your worship, in the middle of your worshiping God. Go find that brother and be reconciled. But he has to choose if he's going to be reconciled to you or not. But if it's a toxic environment, 
if it's if it's a manipulative and toxic situation and people that always manipulate you and make you feel guilty remember when i talked about the ways that a manipulator will try to manipulate you and how they'll use guilt to try to make you feel guilty and and try to make you feel guilty if when you don't do what they want they try to make you feel guilty oh i thought she was a christian oh i thought this oh i thought that is the language of a manipulator you're supposed to forgive now. You're supposed to forgive now. You're supposed to forgive now. And, and yet they don't want to change their behaviors. That That is a manipulator. They use guilt to try to guilt you into their will. And if guilt doesn't work, then they try anger. And they try to use anger to bend you to their will. So to where, to where now you're scared to say no to them because you know the last time you said no, they blew up on you. That's a manipulator. They manipulate you with their anger. They try to bend you to their will. And if that doesn't work, then they'll use something called pity or sympathy. They say, you know, I can't do this without you. You know, you know you're the only one that loved me. You know you're the only this and that and that to try to get what they want out of you. It's the language of a manipulator. So there has to be some changed behaviors in order for there to be an effective relationship going forward. Uh, I'm I'm ministering to somebody on this thing. I pray that I'm helping somebody. I feel like I'm helping somebody here. I feel like I'm helping somebody here. And so and so you don't want to continue uh, a strife or anything like that. But in the kingdom community, you live in a state of forgiveness. But with an understanding that we're in a fallen world, and I don't have to repeatedly put myself into situations that are a threat to my kingdom character and kingdom responsibilities and and the love that I have for people. You have to use wisdom. The, the, The goal is reconciliation, but sometimes we have to settle for forgiveness. Because it's the best for both parties. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with them to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What he's saying here is, is that people are going to try to bring you to court because of your relationship with Jesus. Or, or for other things, he says, make sure you try to agree with them while you're on the way to court. Try to agree with your accuser quickly and settle out of court so you don't you don't put your life in the hands of a judge where you don't know what can happen. You'll be put in prison. So we're not to live this life going and, and burning bridges or, or trying to hurt people or walking with a chip on our shoulder. But... We are to walk peaceably in this world as much as possible, as much that lieth within us. Let us walk peaceably. But when the world is trying to, you know, make you compromise your convictions or compromise biblical truths and biblical mandates, and it's trying to force that on you, there is going to be some conflict. And you have to make up your mind to stand upon the word of God. No matter what, standing upon the word of God. And so, and so as so if you're if your accuser, if your adversary is on the way to take you to court, he said, agree with them quickly. He said, agree with them quickly. Because once you get to the judge, anything can happen. You could go to prison and you have to pay a fine and you won't come out until it's paid. So Matthew is talking about kingdom community and the expectations of a kingdom community and how it runs countercultural to the world. Well, the world wants you to hate and be divisive. God is wanting peace, to be a peacemaker and walk in the love of God. 
Tomorrow, I'm going to pick up in verse 27. But uh, leave a review in this um Leave a review in, in, on this podcast. Thank you so much for, for joining with us. I pray this is being a blessing. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I love each of you, and I'm praying for you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, for more information, you can follow my social media page, Victor M. Jackson, or you can come visit us in Orlando, Florida at Bible Center of Orlando. Thank you for joining us. God bless.